Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Tonight's show is Understanding Stalin. Part two of our series prompted by the centenary of the 1917 Russian Revolution. We're listening to Interlude 3 from Lady Macbeth of the Matinsk District, an opera by Dmitry Shostakovich. The piece was denounced by Pravda as coarse, primitive, and vulgar in an article entitled Muddle Instead of Music, putting Shostakovich out of official favor. Two days before the article was published in early 1936, a performance of Lady Macbeth would become the stage for Shostakovich's own private great terror. Stalin and the Politburo were in the audience, and Shostakovich later recounted his horror in watching Stalin shudder at outbursts by the brass and percussion, and laughing with the Politburo at the love scenes. Audience members would later tell of Shostakovich looking white as a sheet, taking his bow after the third act. It was speculated that it was Stalin who actually wrote the review in Pravda. A 1935 review in the New York Sun called it a pornophony, referring to the lurid descriptive music in the sex scenes. In a 1989 article cited in Elizabeth Wilson's biography of the composer, Richard Tereskin interprets the work in the context of Stalin's campaign against the Kulaks, in 1930, considering its portrayal of the killings of Katerina's Kulak in-laws as a justification of genocide. All of our music tonight is composed by Shostakovich. In the conclusion of Hiroaki Kurumiya's 1991 short biography of Stalin, he writes what perhaps is all we need to know of Stalin's worldview. First, Stalin underlined the following passage in Trotsky's 1920 Terrorism and Communism. Quote, if human life in general is sacred and inviolable, we must deny ourselves not only the use of terror, not only war, but also revolution itself. Unquote. Stalin emphasized the importance of this passage with the exclamatory marginal comment, right. And second, as a kind of bookend, in 1952, near the end of his life, Stalin told his secret police chief, who he suspected was reluctant to use terror. Quote, You want to keep your hands clean, do you? You can't. Have you forgotten Lennon ordered Fanny Kaplan to be shot? If you're going to be squeamish, I'll smash your face in. Unquote. Hiroaki Kurumiya is our guest tonight in the studio. Kurumiya is a professor of history at Indiana University who has written several books on Stalin and his effect on Russia and the world. These include The Voices of the Dead, Stalin's Great Terror in the 1930s, Freedom and Terror in the Donbass, a Ukrainian-Russian borderland, 1870s to 1990s, Stalin's Industrial Revolution, Politics and Workers, 1928 to 1932, and the short biography titled Stalin. Is Joseph Stalin more complicated than what I just quoted might indicate? Or does that about sum it up? This is the man who, with forced collectivization, dekulakization, famine, and the Great Terror, not to mention the millions of bodies thrown into the pit of World War II, was responsible for the deaths of untold tens of millions of the very people said to have won a new world by revolution in 1917. We'll put this question to our guest, Hiroaki Kurumiya, for today's show, Understanding Stalin on Interchange on WFHB. Hiroaki Kurumiya, welcome to Interchange. Thank you very much for having me over here. I uh, don't know if you've seen it, but there's a scene in Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, it's, uh, I don't know when that movie took place, but it was uh, the movie actually happens in, the five, I guess, five years after the Spanish Civil War. And it popped into my head when reading that part about smashing your face in, um, and it just kind of made me shudder. There, like the understanding of the capability of, of 
of you know smashing someone's face. And in the movie, uh, the one of the officers or the primary main officer, the main character in the movie, smashes a peasant's face in with a bottle. Uh-huh. And and Del Toro shows this, and it's just just horrifying. And it's but it's a movie, right? uh-huh. mm-hmm. and the fact that these are the things that are happening. You know, there are people that are capable of doing these things. Um, I guess I should know. Right. But it's something that uh, on a daily basis, I don't experience it. But there is there is a world in which people do experience these things on a daily basis. Right. Yes. Daily basis and and on a large scale, as you see. So, yes, uh, certainly starting the Soviet Union turned out to be very, very bloody. Yeah. uh, And as you say, on a large scale. And um, so we're talking about Stalin today and and your book is uh, uh, Stalin and it's part of a uh, series called Profiles in Power. Um, Your primary thesis is that Stalin uh, himself was the state, thought of himself as the Mm -hmm. state, thought of himself Mm -hmm. that, that Stalin was politics, Stalin was power. Uh, Stalin, even the name is Man of Steel or something like that, right? Stalin yes, was yes. a construction, mm-hmm. and he was the party. Yes. He was a- a- everything. So yes. in, in a sense, for the party to maintain itself, everything is allowed. Yes. He identified himself with the party and the state so much that he often referred to himself as a Stalin. In the third person. Third, right? In the third yeah. person, yeah. yes. <laughs> yes, I'm not Stalin. Starting the state, <laughs> so yes, <laughs> right. He made a point of saying this to uh, one of his uh, grandchildren or something like that, right? Where he yes. said, "You're not Stalin. Uh, uh, Your name's not uh, Stalin. You're not. St- I'm not Stalin. Yeah, the state his son is Stalin." Signed, no, yes, he said these yeah. things. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's give Stalin a little background, right? So Stalin uh, is a Georgian. Yes, right? he comes from Georgia. Now, what does that mean to us who have no clue what the Soviet well, Union Georgia was? Georgia is uh, a country situated in southern Caucasus. Uh, who speak, uh, um, the people speak uh, a very different language. Uh, we don't know where it came from, but uh, it's certainly not uh, part of the Indo-European language. It, was, it had a very close relationship to Persia, Turkey, but uh, by the beginning of the 19th century, it uh, was incorporated into the Russian Empire. Mm. And that's how Stalin ended up in the Russian Empire, and uh, he was forced to learn to speak English. Initially, he had some difficulties, but in the end, he learned to speak very well. He mastered the Russian language very often. He edited other people's writings. Mm. So, yeah. uh, George, he, you said, um, I think you said Asia, like Asia, like he called himself well, the an Asiatic. Yeah. yeah, he called himself, I'm an Asiatic, yes. Uh, but uh, What do you mean by that? What you know, he had, I'm sure he had a sort of antagonism toward uh, European democracy, mm-hmm. European dominance of the world. Uh, so he, I think he said, I'm Asiatic, I'm not a part of this, uh, you know, this respectable European culture. Mm-hmm. I'm more sort of close to. Mm-hmm. to the ordinary lower-class people. Mm. I'm the representative of the oppressed. Is there a sense that mm. he had um, uh, identification with Genghis Khan uh, as an Asiatic? He, he, in one of the books he read, he underlined uh, uh, the remark uh, Genghis Khan may have, uh, Genghis Khan is said to have uh, said, which is that uh, the death of the conquered is necessary for the peace of the mind of the victor. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So but in that sense, he may have, uh, you know, he, he was a good, uh, he read history a great deal. Mm. So he knew history very well. And uh, yes, there is a bit of a connection between Genghis Khan and Stalin. But I don't think she, he, he knew a great deal about Asia. Mm. Uh, but he knew a great deal about Europe. There is no doubt about it. Right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a sense that, you, again, you, you point out in your book that Stalin um, was a disciplined reader as well. Mm-hmm. It's, but it also seemed like he forced himself to be different than he was initially. Like there's a point where I think Trotsky says something to the effect Stalin was in, in exile and in prison and didn't read a thing or didn't write mm-hmm. a thing. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense that, you know, part of this is a self-discipline to overcome the sense that everyone else had around him that maybe he wasn't quite the intellect comparable to Trotsky or Lenin. Yeah, that's what uh, other people said. Stalin was not uh, intellectually brilliant to Trotsky, Harin, or... Lenin, maybe, we don't know for sure, mm-hmm. but he, we do know that he read a great deal. Trotsky criticized him for not uh, r- having written much when he was in exile. 
Well, he may have had difficulty because he had difficulty accessing uh, uh, books, but uh, he was, uh, Stalin was a very disciplined man. He had a self-imposed quota of reading uh, several, several hundred pages every day mm-hmm. and so on. So, yeah, he, he was very, very disciplined and uh, worked very hard. He excoriated peop- other people for not working hard enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like his, uh, I think he had a son who he disowned for being somewhat lazy too. Too, or not just uh, being lazy. Yeah, he had two sons, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, yes, he, he didn't have a good relationship with his own sons. But he also, you know, criticized his own entourage very harshly sure. for not taking interest in this or that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, uh, but b- before this, Stalin uh, had, uh, I guess, designs, or his family had designs on him becoming a priest. Is that right? Yes. Yes. He, uh, his uh, his mother wanted him to become a priest. Yes. This is not an <laughs> uncommon. Uh, thing to maybe have that's a of. good way to become yeah. educated right. and to, uh, you know acquire a certain social status right. mm-hmm. this is a, a, an occupation that sort of goes by the wayside with the revolution though uh, right. he, he gave up <laughs> 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 the church gives up for a while as well huh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, when did when did revolution come to Stalin? Uh, um well, well, revolution there were two revolutions, mm-hmm. 1905 revolution mm-hmm. which uh, forced uh, the Tsarist government to make some concessions, but the Tsarist government survived, but uh, it uh, collapsed in February 1917 and there was a chaos and uh, by the autumn of 1917 the Bolsheviks came to came to power and they survived. And Stalin was a part. Of, was a Bolshevik, right? He was a Bolshevik. Yes. Uh, from the beginning, he, he from the beginning. Yeah, it? from the beginning. Yes. Mm-hmm. And early mm-hmm. on, he was like again. When does Stalin sort of get in the consciousness of this story? And uh, for us, you know, there like it's easy to talk about Lenin and and Trotsky as Bolsheviks, and it's it's well, easy. Trotsky to, wasn't yeah. a initially no, he, Bolshevik. No, he was a Menshevik, mm-hmm. and then a, right. some other thing. I forget yeah. the name of it. Yeah, but he wasn't the Bolshevik. He, mm-hmm. he he had his own very independent ideas. Mm-hmm. It was only in nineteen seventeen. That he became a, uh, a Bolshevik under Lenin's sway, or well, the tactics came together. So tactics. I think, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the tactics, the revolutionary tactics. Mm-hmm. So uh, from Sta- uh, Trotsky's point of view, probably he thinks, well, Lenin came to me, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. from Lenin's point of view, I'm not quite sure. What <laughs> right. he, yes, right. uh-huh. but, uh, right. mm, but Stalin was uh, initially a Georgian romantic mm-hmm. because uh, Georgia was a sort of colonized nation oppressed okay, by sure. the Russians. So he started as a very romantic uh, Georgian nationalist, wrote romantic poems and mm-hmm. so on. But sometime uh, when he was studying in the seminary, he became uh, he became a Marxist, hmm. mm-hmm. a Marxist. So mm-hmm. he did he also studied Marx at that time, oh, or he oh, just became a Marxist. Obviously, he yeah, read. Yeah, he yeah. read. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. These are hard things to kind of get a grasp on, like uh, in the terms of the times and and revolution and the the geography of the of the country as well. Like trying to understand even Petrograd. Like for me, trying to understand Petrograd being so close to Finland, yes, um, mm-hmm. and not having any real sense of how things happen in such a gigantic, yes, you know, landmass. Mm-hmm. And and Stalin, where is Georgia in relation in to the south? It's so very it's close, very close to Persia and uh, Turkey. Yes, far uh, away from uh, Petrograd. Very far from. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. how does Georgia? How does revolution come to Georgia from Petrograd? Well, in the end, it, it, in Georgia was certain there was very strong sentiment against Russia. Mm. So when the October Revolution takes place, in the end, the Georgians declared independence, okay. which was recognized by, by, the, by the Bolsheviks. Mm. Uh, this is, happens in 1920. There was civil war, Turkey intervened, mm-hmm. Britain intervened, France, oh, Germany. It's, it's a complete mess. Mm-hmm. But in the end, uh, yes, uh, uh, Lenin acknowledges independence of uh, uh, Georgia. Georgia. But by the beginning of 1920, they, the Red Army, invaded Georgia mm. and destroyed the, the Menshevik government. They, it was the Menshevik government, and they incorporated Georgia back into the uh, To be the one-party one party state. Uh, yes, mm. into, into the Soviet okay. system, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's take a break right now. Um, 
We'll listen to Nocturne from the Limpid Stream, arranged for piano. It's performed by Vladimir Ashkenazi. This is, again, a Shostakovich piece. This is Interchange on WFHB. Uh, this work was denounced by Pravda in a surprise second article published the same year as the critique of his Lady Macbeth, this time for incorrectly portraying peasant life on a collective farm. More on understanding Stalin with Hiroki Kurmia. When Interchange returns, stay with us. Welcome back to Interchange. This is Doug Storm. Our show today is Understanding Stalin. Our guest is IU Bloomington history professor Hiroaki Kuramiya. Um, we covered in the first segment a little bit of Stalin's background. He's from Georgia. Um, he was a, kind of a romantic poet, briefly, I guess, uh -huh. uh, and then turned to revolution, yes. like so many at that time. Yes. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. It was in the air. Um, and uh, I did want to ask a quick question about Georgia. Uh, again, you say that uh, in 1920, the uh, the Bolshevik government and the Red Army, in terms of civil war, um, the defeated or recognized in 1920. Oh, recognized. 1921 and to destroyed it. Oh, okay. yeah. mm. <laughs> recognized it and then destroyed it. Uh, so there's a point in there where it's not it's okay to be an independent party, and then it stops being okay to be an independent party. What what happened in that? in that period? Well, this is a complicated question and mm -hmm. written about it, but clearly the Bolsheviks wanted to recover territory, mm. which was part of the Russian Empire. It couldn't recover the territory of Finland, former Finland, Poland, and the Baltic states. Mm -hmm. But the Caucasus was probably, they thought it was a very strategic area, mm. and there were small countries, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Ar Armenia, and uh, they decided to do it. They decided, and many of the, you know, Stalin himself, a Georgian, mm -hmm. and there are other Bolsheviks like Orjan Keys who thought that uh, their homeland should become Bolshevized. Mm. So they were very keen to go and conquer mm. and beat the Mensheviks who are political enemies. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. This didn't go over well in Georgia for Stalin, though, right? I mean, <laughs> these are terrible things to have done to. Like this is this is the part of trying to understand how how much of this is internal. Right, how much internal war is happening, how much politics is happening, how much who's going to be in charge of this state, or how many states could there be, or what is one Russia, and all these questions are sort yes, of boiling. They were all boiling. Yes, they were all involved there. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. right. uh, Again, but they were centralists, they were, hmm. you know, authoritarian, and uh, right. they thought they were right. Menshevik's were, you know, nothing, so ah. they just wanted to, you know, extend their power hmm. and uh, kick out uh, their opponents. 
to mm-hmm. create the socialist state. That's correct, right, yes. Right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's been a lot of talk, I guess, uh, again, we mentioned it a little bit before about Stalin having a kind of perhaps inferiority complex initially anyway about being not the most theoretical of the group or being kind of not felt to be smart and this is this is felt throughout uh, but generally as we come to find he's quite a masterful politician mm, at the mm. very least he may not be the most uh, brilliant uh, theoretician uh, certainly yes I'm not quite sure whether he had a sort of intellectual inferiority complex I'm not quite sure because that wasn't his right. priority mm. uh, he oft- sometimes had you know disdains people who had mm. intellectual pretension. Sure, sure. He, probably he knew that he was a politician mm. and politics was what uh, mattered to him and uh, his reputation may not have been as uh, good as Trotsky's or Lenin's or Bukharin's, but I don't think he was worried much about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what is his relationship to these other key figures? So how does Stalin um, fit in with Lenin and, and Trotsky, there's Kamenev and Zinoviev? So let's start with Lenin first. Uh, after, the, after Lenin dies and, and when Stalin, I guess, uh, in a sense, deposes a left opposition mm-hmm. of Trotsky, Stalin becomes for all hagiography, right, the mm-hmm. the successor to Lenin and yes. Lenin and Leninism or Stalin's mm-hmm. version of Lenin, Success Lenin of Marxism. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So is this a real thing? Is this a this does Lenin Lenin believe in Stalin the way Stalin seems to believe in, in Lenin? There are all kinds of stories, uh, you know, we don't know the whole truth, but all we uh, judging from what we know, uh, Lenin uh, thought that Stalin was a good politician. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stalin had some uh, character char- is- character issues, like he <laughs> tended to be very rude and to right. not considerate and so on. But when it came to politics, uh, Stalin was probably the most reliable person, mm. Lenin thought. So in the end, it was Lenin who put Stalin in the position of the general secretary of the party. And uh, towards the end of Lenin's life, relationship relationship between Lenin and Stalin was quite good, Mm. even though there are uh, different uh, stories, but they may well have been forged. Mm. We don't know. There are controversies here. Yeah, yeah. mm. I think you note that there, I mean, he's one of the primary people Lenin sees many, many days uh, during Mm -hmm. during his illness. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. So clearly he's at least I, you know, talking to him about what what the future might bring. Uh, even though yeah. Lenin, there is the Lenin uh, testament, right, mm-hmm. that, that comes mm-hmm. out at some point. Is that mm-hmm. is that a true document? Well, uh, most people believe so. Uh, there are some people who say that uh, they may have some some part. There are several uh, documents. Some may have been uh, forged, mm-hmm. fabricated. Uh, I am not quite sure whether they were. But uh, we should consider the possibility mm-hmm. that uh, they may have been fabricated because mm. these people, you know, master, past masters of conspiracy and mm-hmm. so on. And they they did all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, just fabricating a few documents was no <laughs> no, no problem. They're very easy for them. So, so the so. testament uh, claim or declares that Stalin is not not he should be removed. Right? That's right. Yes, but he wasn't. He was not, and no. uh, there was no evidence. Uh, firm evidence that uh, Lenin went out of his way to remove Lenin, uh, Stalin. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we don't know these these these, these, these uh, difficult questions. Right. Yeah, right. we don't have any clear or final answer. But as you say, Stalin, uh, Lenin puts Stalin in a very important position. General Secretary of the Party puts mm-hmm. him in in the center of everything, mm-hmm. basically, right? Mm-hmm. What information coming in, information going out. He's in the middle of it. Yes. Which mm-hmm. means he's able to to yes. amass yeah, a lot yes. of power. Yes, he had a great of, great deal of power by 1922. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the um, you also say that he's like on three separate powerful boards or committees, right? Yes, Isn't Politburo, Orgubiro, and uh, Secretariat. And he's the only so one, right? He was right. the only one who's, uh, had, who held three positions, yes. Mm-hmm. Now, for anyone at the time who's uh, anxious or nervous about power, and who's holding it? Is, doesn't Stalin pe- make people nervous already? Initially, they underestimate the Stalin. Right. And in general, secretary position, that may be just an uh, administrative position. It may not have any political power. That Nobody wants there. to push paper around. That's right. So <laughs> they underestimate the Stalin, right. yes. Mm-hmm. 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 So, uh, so Stalin clearly 
knows what he's doing. He, yes, he's he patient, did. right? Yeah, he was a very patient man. Right. He was a very good listener. Right, right. He was a very good uh, patient listener. There is no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And why do you think people underestimated him? Well, because, maybe, because maybe because he spoke Russian with an accent. Mm. Maybe he didn't show off his intellectual flair. Yeah, you talk about he, pretensions from other yeah, people. Yeah, so, right? but certainly he did not have intellectual pretension because mm-hmm. many of these Bolshevik leaders were intellectually brilliant. Right. And they were very fond of displaying their mm-hmm. intellectual, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, mastery of this or that. But <laughs> right. Stalin did not have that sort of, you know, mm-hmm. vanity. When yeah. when does Stalin start to become uh, very clearly? Uh, he he becomes, I think, already something of a problem while Lenin is living. Right? Mm-hmm. Is is, is this where he, the period where he's something of a dictator in Tsaritsyn? Is that right? Yes, yes. Yeah. During uh, during the civil war, so he had that sort of tendency. Probably he you know he he liked power. And mm-hmm. he believes that power solves all kinds of quest, uh, problems. Right. And uh, he did not trust other people. And clearly he was competing for power with other mm-hmm. important Bolshevik leaders. Mm-hmm. So, yes, in, in already in the early years of his power, he was quite uh, prone to abuse mm-hmm. uh power, but they were talking about proletarian dictatorship. Yeah. So if it's dictatorship, uh, what kind of constraints uh, uh, could there have been on, on their power? Right. So yes, he was exercising his dictatorial yeah. power quite well, quite yeah. Uh, yeah. extensively. Well, <laughs> I, read, uh, I read something that uh, in 1925, this city, Tsaritsyn, was renamed Stalingrad, yes. right? Mm-hmm. And in 1961, as part of the de-Stalinization process, the city... Um, renamed itself Volgograd, right? Mm -hmm. And it's one of the largest cities in key industrial areas. So as part of the what the the recognition that Stalin not such a great a great guy to be named after, or certainly after Stalin died, Khrushchev criticized him, mm-hmm. and his body was removed from the mausoleum. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, there was a de-Stalinization campaign going on after Stalin died, and as a part of that campaign, yes, uh, many names. Uh, uh, bearing the name of uh, Stalin mm-hmm. uh, were changed, and including then, Stalingrad. And that's in 61. Now, w- uh, it's in 56 that Khrushchev reveals... That's correct, yes. The secrets, secrets uh, report. What, what the, does he reveal at that point? Well, he, 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 he told the entire Congress how terrible Stalin was. So many people were killed by Stalin's order. He was a bloody dictator. And by saying that, Khrushchev uh, wanted to show that he was rather innocent, mm. which was not true, <laughs> but uh, that was a power game uh, starting. Uh, Khrushchev wanted to dump all the problems of the starting year or years on starting and try to... And start fresh for himself. That's right, exactly. Mm. Ah, so it was mm. a political maneuver as yes, well. But yes. not untrue? Uh, not untrue. They, all these guys are involved in, right. in the bloody terror. Yeah, right, mm-hmm. right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Well, um, there, and we'll get to this at, after the uh, after the next break. In, in your book, there's a, a chapter about the Great Terror, which we'll we'll talk about. That you you actually write, uh, as was the case with collectivization and dekulakization, which we need to talk about as well. The Great Terror was a momentous operation, and all resources had to be mobilized. Uh, it's one of those things that that come up throughout. You know the way in which these things that are horrifying are managed you know via via this incredible ability to organize resources and put them to use in mm-hmm. these horrifying ways mm-hmm. uh, I, I you know you laugh about it as a kind of pro- self protection you know to imagine living in that world is i i mean i just don't know how to think about it mm-hmm. right that, uh, that's terribly Yes, a difficult matter to comprehend, mm. but I think uh, we we could if we we'll are try. serious. Yeah. Well, uh, what I say is that probably he understood that any bureaucracy would resist because mm. uh, he was telling people to kill up to one million people. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. that's what kind of operation is that? Yeah. So he was certainly expecting resistance. Mm-hmm. How to break bureaucratic resistance? Mm-hmm. So his position, his policy was, and this is consistent. In many of uh, his uh, uh, policies, he encouraged excesses. Excesses, 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 okay, mm-hmm. but moderation is, is dangerous. Mm-hmm. You can go too far, 
But if you can go far, we can we can blame other people. Right. But if you don't go far enough, policy cannot power. be yeah, it won't work. implemented. Uh, yeah, yeah. That this is dangerous. <laughs> so that is a sort of modus operandi. Excess. Um, excess. That's all right. Acceptable. Gotcha. Well, it's time for another break. This will be from Shostakovich's Suite for Jazz Orchestra Number no. One. Shostakovich composed it in 1934 as a way to prove that serious music could be written in popular forms after Stalin declared all artistic and musical work would be under the party's control in 1936, which included so-called light music, no more proof was needed. It had been decided. A second jazz suite would be commissioned in the USSR for the USSR State Jazz Band in 1938, an ensemble created to steer and control the public's taste in popular music. We'll return to understanding Stalin when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. This is Doug Storm. Hiroki Kuromiya is in the studio with me. He's a history uh, history professor at Indiana University Bloomington and expert on Stalin. You'd say that, wouldn't you? I can, yes. Yes, I, yes. I so, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, written many books uh, on Stalin and the effects of Stalin in the world, in Russia in particular. Um, we had gone to the break uh, talking about um, Stalin as a dictator, or his tendencies as a dictator already showing up uh, early on in his uh, period in Tsaritsyn. Uh, there's already also at this point a secret police uh, in place. Uh, yes, the Cheka, certainly. is that yes, right? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Is in place already. So clearly we're in uh, that place where uh, a lot of times when we talk about the revolution, we talk about Lenin and Trotsky and Stalin, we like to sort of um, be gentle with Lenin sometimes and, and, and make Stalin everything uh, negative. But Lenin, of course, put Stalin in these places. And as you say, Lenin approved, uh, at least in some measure, of the politics of it, if not yes. necessarily the yes. action themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Stalin, as you say, got things done, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so let's turn to um, Stalin in power. When, when does Stalin first sort of become the, the supreme leader here? Well, he was appointed general secretary of, of the party in 1922. Uh, that didn't alarm many people, but soon it 
became apparent that, uh, in fact, uh, Stalin has a great deal of power in his hands. <laughs> so people began to worry about Stalin's power. Uh, so there was a intra-party struggle taking place in various phases, mm-hmm. and by 1929, Stalin was basically in uh, in power. Well, almost all the uh, rivals were, you know, removed. The primary one being Trotsky and Trotsky, that Buharin, left opposition power. Buharin, uh, Trotsky, Zinoviev, Kamenev, mm-hmm. Buharin, Tomsky, Ruikov. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in 29, so at this point too, Stalin is recognizing the world and, and the way the world is happening, like there are things happening in the world as well. So Bolshevism comes to power in some sense due to World War One. It's a mm-hmm. period where an imperial war, as Lenin says, mm-hmm. can be turned into a civil war and mm-hmm. made use of t- for the revolution. Yes. But there are, there are a lot of things happening in the world still. Hitler's beginning to rise to power uh, during this period as well, I, I think. 1933. Yes. So Stalin is aware of, of the world in, in a way that maybe others aren't aren't aware of um, and, and at some point you know we have to recognize too Russia is a backward country right mm-hmm. still this is still the case relatively backward yeah yes. and mm-hmm. so Stalin says um, we got to catch up we're a hundred years behind mm-hmm. and we we need to catch up in ten years mm-hmm. prescient yes yeah. it was very clear that um, the entire co- entire world Basically, the entire world was against the Soviet Union. I can think of any single country that was very friendly to uh, to the Soviet Union. Possibly China, Mongolia was not quite independent, uh, but uh, Stalin certainly expected that uh, all these uh, capitalist countries would destroy the Soviet Union at some point because it was a real pain in the neck, you see. <laughs> and some, all of a sudden, this uh, communist regime uh, uh, emerged in the, large, in the largest uh, country in the world, mm-hmm. and that upset uh, the global uh, balance of power completely. So, yes, uh, they initially tried, tried to kill the Bolshevik uh, government. They couldn't. But Stalin certainly expected that at some point, at some point in the future, he didn't know when. Uh, yes, they mm-hmm. will. They will attack us. So, so there is a there is a clear like designation between the 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 Russia that is nascently capitalist, right, with 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 the Tsar and mm-hmm. capitalism and business, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how the rest of the world is making use of Russia, mm-hmm. right, and the fact that Bolshevism takes over, the Russian Revolution happens, no more capitalism. Yeah, to be to to make use of Russia in mm-hmm. a sense, right? Mm-hmm. So as you say, it, it throws the world out of balance in that space. Was was the World War One intended to a shift? I mean, was there a shift hoped for at that point as well? Like, did Bolshevism? Um, oh, I lost my train there. That's not going to yeah, work. Yeah, uh, I, I of course, Bolsheviks' main interest is in in, in power. Mm-hmm. So they didn't pay much attention to to the economy mm. when the civil war ended in 1920-21. The economy was completely ruined. Ah. So it had to be restored, and then in, in the end uh, introduced a limited degree of market relations into the economy, yeah, the NEP, which helped right. NEP, which mm-hmm. helped to recover uh, from the ruin. But uh, mm-hmm. by the late 1920s, Stalin already wanted to. Make the country stronger Something through industrial days. Yes, right. they're mm-hmm. in they're in the in the throes of yeah. of uh, poverty. They're they've they've spent all their resources on war, and then the civil war as well has has exhausted the country right. also. Mm-hmm. And they have to do something. And Stalin uh, decides to uh, introduce socialism from above. So yeah, re- we call it revolution, revolution from above. From above yes, okay, sure. which meant uh, very rapid industrialization. Uh, they they pumped uh, enormous resources from the countryside to 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 to, to industry to build uh, factories plants so that uh, uh, the country would produce uh, as many airplanes tanks guns yeah. and all these weapons and and armaments uh, but for that uh, it needed resources mm-hmm. uh, so the Soviet Union was still an overwhelmingly agrarian country. Therefore, the only or the most important resources of national wealth came from the countryside. Mm -hmm. So they had to take uh, resources from the countryside. How to do it? Well, by force. Well, that would cause that that might cause a civil war. So there was a great deal of debate going on for many years in the 1920s. But in the end, Stalin resorted to uh, terror, force, force, uh, forcefully 
collectivize the countryside and eliminated any opposition through decolonization, which is basically dispossession of peasants who oppose the, uh, the collectivization drive. Mm. So uh, what does this mean to collectivize then? How, what, uh, what happens in the countryside? Basically, they did three things. They went to the village, closed the village church, mm-hmm. which was a you know, rallying point of peasants. They closed the village market so that the peasants would know where to sell their produce. And then they socialized the draft animals. Without the draft animals, they cannot really till the land. Mm. And they confiscate the draft animals to collectives, collective farms. Mm-hmm. That way, peasants would have no choice but to join uh, the collective farm. And share the animals. That's right. Share the animals and the land and so on. Mm-hmm. So it was a sort of frontal attack against the produ- pr- uh, traditional mm. mode of life in the countryside. Mm. Now, there was a period where the peasants were actually slaughtering and eating their animals. Yeah, because yeah. they were losing their animals to the they collective farm. They were going to lose farms. them anyway. Yes, yeah. so yeah, let's Might eat, as well them. eat them. That's right, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the number of livestock declined very dramatically. Yeah. Very, very dramatically. Is this the beginning where we start to sort of get the sense of, of, of of, um, of uh, murder and um, political yes. political murders, thousands upon thousands. Yes, it was then that uh, uh, mass violence began to be applied uh, after civil war, mm-hmm. and it was a time when people were exiled en masse to Siberia, Central Asia, to the north, and then the gulag mm-hmm. became uh, became a significant, uh, sort of very important. The gulag existed since 1918, mm-hmm. but the gulag became uh, far bigger. It grows, yeah, uh, grew. Uh, as as many as 2.5 million at some point. I Later, think. not yeah. not at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, so this is already the, the the course for the for the regime in a sense to apply terror mm-hmm. and terror yes. meaning just mass murders, uh, exporting to Siberia, putting in the gulag. Um, Killing any particular rivals, as you say, um, these all these things all started around that okay, time. Yes, okay. mass murder. Well, we don't know how many. Certainly, tens of thousands. Yeah, but not yet millions. Not yet. Thousand, yeah, no. yeah. Mm. We're ramping up for that. Mm. So okay. the yeah <laughs> the next uh, the next uh, thing that happens is a famine, right? In, mm-hmm. in thirty two, is that right? Thirty two, three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is this is of course. There's some debate. I think you've written about this in two thousand five or seven about whether the famine was actually uh, not necessarily instigated but actually you know kept as it was or pushed into a certain place in the Ukraine in particular right yes this is a very complicated issue and there is a great you got three deal minutes you can there, do it, there's right? a great deal of a debate right. uh, whether Stalin intentionally killed the you know right. three four million Ukrainians uh, yes uh, my position is a bit uh, subtle uh, I would say Stalin didn't care about uh, killing people but whether he meant to kill three million people or not is another question. Mm. Stalin certainly didn't care about these peasants who right. were not willing to give up their their produce. Uh, but uh, whether we have a, a sort of smoking gun of Stalin's uh, mm-hmm. deliberate killing of millions of people, that's another question. Mm-hmm. So we don't have the smoking gun for that like we do with the terror. Which that's will, correct. Which that's correct. There we are have smoking a, we, guns. There. We have uh, execution orders right. all over. Yes. What does mm-hmm. it matter that you do or don't care about millions dying or being having it being intentional? You know, there's a sense throughout this all, and I, I talk. We talk about it a little bit earlier. There's, there's kind of an abstraction of killing going that's on. That's right. right. Yes. So this, this is common. You know, Mao Zedong had a similar idea. Uh, I think what interests them is the power. So if million people are resistant. To his power, why not? Yeah. That's an incredible thought. I, ca- I don't share it, and you right. don't share, <laughs> and very few people share, right. but we're talking about we are dictators yeah. whose uh, priority, whose only goal is power. So uh, in this context, I understand that dictators mm, probably don't care about uh, lives, even if... Uh, uh, the numbers maybe a million or two. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Is there a, a, any kind of real difference between between trying to understand emperors that sort of um, gain power and then hold power and then are in family power in some sense, hereditary power, um, and how they treat their particular quote-unquote subjects or the people that they rule and dictators that come to power, that force power, that, you know, that, that we make dict- or that make themselves dictators. Is there a, a difference between these types of people, do you think? Or is that a silly question? I don't know. Well, I'm not quite sure. Stalin certainly had the two sons. 
Uh, he didn't think that they were fit for power. They, they wouldn't be hereditary. <laughs> no, no not hereditary, hereditary. Mm-hmm. So uh, he may have, Stalin may have thought that he was new there, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, he was uh, above uh, that sort of narrow hereditary mm. or dynastic uh, concerns. He was more interested in the power and how to, how to survive, mm. how to keep uh, the Soviet Union going. But the Soviet uh, Union was him as well, though. That's right. Yeah. So that's uh, the dilemma he had. Yeah. He couldn't nom- nominate his successor because no one looked enough for no him. One no Stalin. one was Stalin. No one looked good enough for him. Yes. <laughs> right. that, no one was Stalin. Yes. No one is Stalin. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's a good thing, I guess. So, well, it's time for our final break. Here's an excerpt from Shostakovich's Symphony Number no. 4. It marked a major shift in the composer's style due to Mahler's influence, but was being composed at the time Pravda denounced him. Despite planning a premiere at the end of 1936, Shostakovich decided to withdraw the symphony from public consumption, perhaps saving his life. The work would finally premiere well after Stalin's death in 1961. Again, this is Interchange on WFHB. Stay with us. Welcome back. This is Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Our guest in the studio with me is Hiroki Kuromiya, author of a short biography of Stalin, among many other books, and a professor of history here at Indiana University. Um, we've been listening to Shostakovich throughout. Shostakovich had a, 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 a bit of a, a confused or fraught relationship with Stalin as the dictator and as the kind of uh, composer of the people, in a sense, I suppose. Uh, Shostakovich also, though, enjoyed the fruits of that relationship, right? Certainly. He, 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 he enjoyed a great deal of benefits, uh, privileges given by Stalin, the Soviet government. Uh, yes, he enjoyed them. He uh, was, of course, frightened all the time, it w- I would imagine. Oh, obviously, yes, <laughs> obviously. He was attacked a number of times, uh, right. yes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the, the issue that... Um, that that we move to next, you know, after Stalin Stalin being empowered, collectivization. We didn't t- touch on de-kulakization, which I'm not sure where it fits within between here and the Great Terror. Um, it was one of those uh, terrible events uh, in which uh, the Soviet government went to the countryside and dispossessed uh, uh, whoever was uh, opposed to collectivization mm-hmm. and. Uh, 
many of them uh, were sent to uh, exile in Siberia mm. in the north and so. Was it Kulak another kind of class at that point? Or? Well, Kulak literally means the rich peasants, mm. uh, yeah. but uh, basically whoever opposed uh, the collectivization mm. drive was branded as Kulaks Kulak. and, mm. and uh, okay. yeah, terrorized. Okay. Uh, probably more than three million people suffered. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's we begin to get into these giant, gigantic numbers now. With the great terror, in particular, the terror is about. Uh, I think you point out the terror to you has as much to do with world the the impending World War Two, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. So w- what's going on with the great? First, first of all, what is the great terror? What happened during that period? Great terror took place in 1937-38, in which 1.34 million people arrested, of which about half of them. In other words, nearly 700 people were executed. 700,000 people? 700, sorry, 700,000 mm-hmm. people were executed deliberately. And we have orders by Stalin and others mm-hmm. that they should be uh, executed. Mm-hmm. And so Stalin makes particular um, orders to to focus on particular groups as that's well. That's correct, right? yes. Uh, some of, many of those who are decolonized before are uh, priests, Certain ethnic groups like uh, uh, Poles, uh, Estonians, Latvians, and, and uh, f- uh, Finns, those uh, ethnic minorities who had ties to the countries outside the Soviet Union, these people were targeted. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, they were massacred. Massacred. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the numbers uh, keep kind of ratcheting up here as well. And the new the information that that came out after the fall of the the Soviet Union really really the numbers began to uh, to be investigated more more obviously more clearly. But the, what 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 numbers are we talking? The about? official statistics show that nearly seven hundred thousand people were executed in two years. In two years. In right. two years. But these uh, numbers. Uh, do not include those who are beaten to death in in in, in prisons, uh, mm. uh, uh, or they there are lots of people committed suicide. They mm-hmm. couldn't uh, uh, endure tortures, so we don't know the exact figure that we are we are estimate that up to one million people mm. suffered or died in the Great Terror. In the Great Terror, and um, the Great Terror, I- in your opinion, is uh, a period in which Stalin is literally trying to get rid of the opposition, any possible people that's who, right. who might be against and him. Th- again, this is such a momentous event, and the, uh, such a momentous event that there is a lot of controversy mm. among specialists. Um, but as far as I can say. Yes, he meant to uh, put the rear uh, on war standing so that uh, when war comes, uh, the rear would be safe. Mm. How to make the rear safe? Mm. Uh, remove any potential potential disloyalty from right. uh, from uh, from the rear. And Stalin knows about this because this is what happened in 1917, right? The idea that you can... Yes, uh, Lenin advocated defeatism for Russia. Mm -hmm. Uh, Defeatism is good for the cause of revolution. So all these people, Zinoviev and others, yes, sure, why not take defeatism? Then Stalin would collapse and uh, something different will come out. I don't think many of them thought so, Mm. but Stalin suspected that they do. Mm. Mm-hmm. So at this point, this is when uh, Kamenev, Zinoviev, many others are forced to confess their sins mm-hmm. and executed. That's correct, yeah. yes. Uh-huh. And Trotsky in, in exile is also uh, convicted. Murdered, and murdered. then murdered um, in 1940. Convicted and murdered, yes. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the arch rivalry ends there. <laughs> 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 1940 <laughs> in Mexico, Trotsky is murdered by Stal- uh, agents of Stalin. That's right, correct, right. yes. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so with, uh, after the Great Terror, though, and it's it's... I'm, I hate having to move forward simply because, again, we have to sort of tally up so many millions of people and try to understand that this is, is this generally one man's will at this point? I mean, states don't operate by one man pushing a button. Who are the people that are... I mean, what is the 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 focus of of the government will to do this power, right? Mm-hmm. Who are these people who are committing these horrible atrocities? Uh, we can say that almost all important decisions were made by Stalin, mm-hmm. and then Stalin's charge followed uh, his order. Mm. Now, what were they thinking? Well, late after Stalin died, they tried to exonerate themselves, mm. but they they didn't. They followed the Stalin's like orders. Like Molotov. Molotov, um, Kaganovich, Urshov, mm-hmm. all these people, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, whether they would have stopped, I'm not quite sure. Mm. 
uh, they were quite into that sort of thinking, and they, many of them trusted Stalin. Mm-hmm. And Stalin uh, feared that this was getting out of control even for Stalin, right? He actually but in the end, is after he had killed so many people, he probably he started wondering is that could, should it go on? Yeah. He, he could have killed more, but then who would fight for Stalin? So at some point, uh, he had to stop. But I think the most important thing he wanted to do is to intimidate Mm. Intimidate the people into submission. Yeah. In other words, uh, resisting the Soviet regime or Stalinist regime is useless. Yeah. Therefore, there is no way but submit mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. uh, authority of Stalin, mm. the government of Stalin. And then mm-hmm. war comes, and it, it's in your book. It's the biggest and maybe the great, well, the greatest mistake Stalin ever makes mm-hmm. that happens mm-hmm. here. What What is that mistake? In other words, uh, he had many many spies placed all over the world. And those these spies, they, these spies sent reports that uh, Hitler had made a decision to invade the Soviet Union, and some of them had exact dates. Well, exact means you know spring, May, or June. Stalin was receiving all these reports. This is after the Molotov Ribbentrop. Uh, that's correct. Yeah. That is uh, that that is much earlier. Mm-hmm, this is mm-hmm. we're talking about 1941. Okay. Hitler gave order of Operation Barbarossa in December mm-hmm, 1940. Mm-hmm. So after that, reports started coming. But Stalin didn't want to believe them because he thought he was uh, smarter than uh, Hitler. Mm. Hitler is trying to provoke me into attacking uh, Germany first. Mm-hmm. So he was very very sort of cautious. And he thought he his nerve would withstand this pressure, but in the end, uh, yes, it turned out that Stalin made the mistake of his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he he was not prepared. It was like four a.m. Uh, yeah, that's right. He wasn't prepared. And he even ordered uh, uh, the military forces not to respond mm. because this must be provocation. Mm. But then uh, German ambassador came to Molotov's office and declared the war. So uh, it became clear. Mm. But then Stalin probably didn't know what to do, and he refused to speak to the nation. And he told Molotov, to foreign minister, to do it. Right. I'll do it some, he didn't some speak other for time. Many uh, two weeks he yeah, didn't speak, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, but he did recover, obviously. He did recover. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing that I'd want to, and we're getting close to the end here, the thing that I'd want to, to be clear on here, too, is the, the absolute mind-boggling number of men uh, sent in to die in this particular war. Uh, Twelve thousand a day in many uh, in many periods. Uh, I think something like eight thousand uh, or yeah, nine, not third of thousand. Depends on the uh, on the time period, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. yes, uh, altogether probably seven eight million soldiers were, uh, were, were died. And is something like ten to ten to one to Germany or a hundred to one? <laughs> Some ridiculous yeah, d- number, right? Well, depending on operations, mm-hmm. uh, Germany probably lost for five million, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, Germany fought longer. Mm-hmm. Germany mm-hmm. fought on the land and the sea. Mm-hmm. The Soviet Union fought only on one front and Just basically no naval fights. Walked, walked so, into death but all the time. Yes, yeah, so mm-hmm. human, yes, he used uh, human mm. human lives to overcome <laughs> German forces. Well, yes. how, many, how many number, uh, if we could put a general number on it, uh, do, you, do you have a sense of how many millions you'd say Stalin was responsible for for killing. Well, as far as the Great Teller is concerned, up to one million. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other killings, you know, in 1940, he killed more than 20 million Polish uh, uh, POWs. That mm. was called Katyn massacre. Uh, Did you say 20 million? I'm sorry, 20,000. 20, oh, 20, sorry, 20, <laughs> more, uh, more than 20,000. Not like that's 20, a small 20, number. More, yeah. uh, Polish, yeah. 20, uh, Polish officers. Okay. Uh, um, but how, with, uh, should we include uh, the victims of the famine? Mm-hmm. Should we include uh, the victims or the soldiers, number of soldiers who died? Mm-hmm. Uh, how about uh, those who died in the Civil War? Mm-hmm. Uh, people who died in the decrackization mm-hmm. campaign? So it's not easy to right. tally all these numbers. They're big but numbers. certainly we can say that the millions of people, millions, yeah, he, yeah. he was uh, responsible for. It's how we the put the, the Stalin-Hitler... Uh, you know, put the balance there and, and try to. It's like you say. Why argue about who the who the worst <laughs> worst well, dictator? Uh, as far as the numbers are concerned, yeah, Stalin, not Stalin, not, not yeah, that, yeah, uh, yeah. and probably Mao uh, oh, sure. is responsible for mm. more numbers. China is a big country, so yeah.
cheery stuff. Well, that's our show, and we'll close with waltz number two from Shostakovich's second jazz suite. This is perhaps his most famous work due to its popularity in contemporary movie soundtracks. Thanks to Hiroki Kurumiya for for Kurumiya, sorry, for helping again uh, helping us gain a better understanding of Joseph Stalin. Once Jugashvili, once Sosa, once Koba. Again, uh, Hiroki Kurumiya's short biography is titled Stalin. Thanks, Hiroki. Happy Halloween. Thank you very much. Uh, next week, Lev Davidovich Bronstein, or Leon Trotsky, assassinated in Mexico on Stalin's orders. Paula Blanc joins us for that show. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer. Bryce Martin is our studio engineer. Executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by the Jazz Menagerie, coming up on your community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.